1: Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host Mark Fraser. I am joined once again by Chris Cusack. Um, Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. That is Mark Fraser. He is joined once again by me, Chris Cusack. (laughs) I sure am. This week David is in the Arctic hunting polar bears uh, for a vegan, which is pretty shitty, right, I think. (laughs) See, that's the thing. He's not. He's
2: hunting monkeys. And we did try and tell him, mate, you'll be there forever so we just we haven't seen him in ages because he's up in the arctic hunting monkeys and he just won't be he
1: won't take a telling so uh could be some time yet could be some time yet but in his place once again we have a guest as of course neil Palmer from the accordion podcast neil hello welcome hello hello
3: hello
2: <laughs> neil see when you express an opinion does anyone ever say oh according to you
3: Oh, how long have you had that one in the bag?
2: (laughs) Literally since Mark was like, why don't we get Neil from the Accordion (laughs) (laughs) Podcast?
3: It's good, it's good. 34 episodes in and uh, nobody's ever said that.
1: I am am a little bit ahead of my time. Um, But before we dive into Neil's choice this week, we need to do some housekeeping. So first of all, I want to say a big thank you to all our subscribers who filled in a survey. Uh, We had a few more after our last shout out. That's really great. We're actually going to release a message soon about how we're going to change the, the subscription model and it's quite exciting, so look out for that. We've got a really cool idea and we think you're going to love it. So, yeah. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Pod and check out some of our tiers that are there. There's some really nice things you can still get, um, including personalised episodes, personalised T-shirts and a, ho- <laughs> a whole bunch more things. Spoiler alert, the personalised T-shirts they're going to be going to some extent.
2: Mm-hmm. So if you want one, get in fast. I am willing to do them for a limited time
1: only. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been warned. Yeah, and within the next month, we're going to consult you guys on the new tiers. I'm really excited about what that's going to, what they're going to look like, and I hope you guys will be too. Mark,
2: um, I'm sick of consulting our listeners. Sometimes you just got to tell people things. Sometimes you just need to... It's a top-down form of governance.
1: Yeah, so speaking of telling listeners what they're getting, Neil, what, what are we doing this week?
3: we are doing the um, 2001 classic by my vitriol a band of many many uh, albums and um,
0: <laughs> <outputs>.
3: <laughs> and of course it's uh, fine lines
2: Before we do that though, uh Neil, for the folks that listen to this podcast who might not know about your podcast, uh can you do a little bit the hard sell?
3: Yeah, um just a pre-warning I'm really shit at doing this when people ask me but I'll try my best um, so basically you're the- going to fit right in <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Accordion it's a podcast that I host I guess and I invite a guest on to talk about a particular artists or an album or anything music related and we shoot the shit basically I say anything music related because most of the time it is an artist or a band or an album but the one occasion we did cover a music documentary which was For Fugazi instrument.
2: Uh, can I just say I know for a fact that a fair amount of our listenership will be into a podcast about the instrument video uh, of Fagazi there's definitely a lot of overlap there mm-hmm. you've got some total belters of episodes I think there'll probably be a fair few listeners would like to hear your Alice in Chains episode as well
3: Okay, fantastic but yeah, yeah. so um, currently I'm on a hiatus and that's due to time constrictions and the fact that I made the bulk of this podcast in in lockdown um, where I had a lot more time, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: How on earth do you guys find the time to do this every week? Can I ask that question?
1: That's,
2: that's, <laughs> a, good, that's a good question. <laughs> okay. So the message is listen to the accordion podcast hosted by Neil. Let's return to the subject of my vitriol and their album fine lines. And let's put that sort of interrogation spot lamp back onto Neil himself. <laughs> Neil, What's the fucking deal
3: with this album? <laughs> wow, what a question um, Well, w- w- where do you want me to start? Do you want me to tell you why I like the band And why I like this album? Is that let's, good... Let's, the intro paragraph to your dissertation, yes, please <laughs> Okay I'll tell you what, I'm going to talk about how I got into them, okay? Yeah, right. And then, right. I, a good start. So me and you, Mark, we're the same age, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm just wondering, because they're very much a time and a place band, I think, and Absolutely. if you were of, yeah. of that time, you're not going to... Re- I wouldn't think you would really know Mike Vitriol if he wasn't of a certain age, right? So mm-hmm. a friend of mine had a Kerrang compilation CD, right? I'm not sure if he got it free with the magazine or whether it was one of those ones you could buy. Do you remember a time mm-hmm. when you could... Buy, like these compilation CDs, like yep. cr- yep.
2: you're talking about Best of 2001. That was a buy it in the shop
3: double album, right? Okay, so was there a track on that particular one called Vapor Trails? Exactly, right? Yeah. So you know where I'm going.
0: And it's all insane.
3: The right page of like 14 or 15 guesstimate, right? Um, This particular track had everything I wanted from an angry rock song. Um, And I wanted more. Um, And plus on top of that, it was just to rewind a little bit, I guess. There were all these bands that like most people heard of. And I at this particular time hadn't heard of my Vitriols. Like, who are these guys? They're British as well, which is quite interesting given. I imagine it was probably an American heavy compilation. So anyway... Um, you guys ever heard of a place called Wolverhampton? Yeah,
1: one yeah, of our yeah, best is from Wolverhampton.
3: Oh, fantastic. Well, <laughs> ask him if he remembers, ask he or she, excuse me, if 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 they remember a um, a shop called Highway 61, because I went oh, well. into Highway 61 and bought a copy of Fine Lines, completely ignoring the track list, hoping to get vapour trails, and obviously it's not on there. Um, <laughs> so...
2: <laughs> Which is in itself such a weird decision.
3: So, you know, being a moody teenager and so forth, I sort of left it on my CD shelf. It collected dust for a bit. Um, But back then, you know, my CD collection, it sounds weird saying that CD collection, wasn't obviously as expansive as it would come to be. Um, And so, you know, eventually White Pony and... Things like blood sugar, sex, magic get a bit tiresome after a while, and <laughs> you on, and then you put on um, an album that you haven't heard that well, and slowly but surely it grew on me. And at the time, even though we did get it later, my, a friend of mine—I used to have a paper round basically—and a friend of mine, she had Sky Digital and she had MTV Two. We we didn't have MTV Two at this time. We did get it eventually, but at this current time, we didn't. And then I remember being at her house and watching. Gonzo with Zane Lowe, if you guys remember that. Yeah, yeah. Own coach. yeah. Yeah. And um and seeing like Always Your Way and Grounded on on, on T V and stuff and, 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 and going, Okay, right, well this band has got some success, I guess. And they were having music videos played on you know, MTV too, so I kind of got to know them a bit more there as well the interesting part I guess, is, I mean, I'm sure we'll touch on this, is that I'm not like a massive shoegaze fan like, I love Loveless I love Loveless, by mm. Mother Valentine of course mm. about as far as it goes like so i i find it a little bit head scratchy on why why i am a fan of this album this band and the sound i guess but for some reason i feel like they make it work very very well and you know this combination of sort of like hard hitting drums and fuzzy spacey guitars with sort of like poppy hooks kind of works for me Mm -hmm.
2: It's interesting you mentioned shoegaze because remember the band really well. I think, you know what, I think I saw the band live, but um, wasn't aware of the shoegaze thing as much. I wasn't really aware of shoegaze at that age. It was just a, a genre that had passed me by. I just saw them as being a sort of indie alt rock band. Um, and then what I realise now is that they sort of came to define new gaze, like NU gaze. Obviously, this is coming off the back of the, or off the back. And during the new metal era, and it was a little bit tongue in cheek. We'll talk about where that label came from a wee bit, but yeah, that that wasn't a label I'd ever really uh, associated with them until now. Um, I get it. You're right. The guitars overall are quite processed, very reverby and spacey and big and swirling and cacophonous, uh, but not in a way that we hadn't heard. elsewhere swear I was a really big fan of Trailer of Dead I early on. Advanced, yeah. and- Yeah, and and they did a lot of that, and they were taking that from Sonic Youth, and they were taking a lot of their stuff from um, Husker Du, and so th- there was there was a kind of an evolution of that sound, and I hadn't really just I hadn't really put my finger on it with this, and and until we did this, so it's fascinating, and just to place this a little bit for folk that are listening, right? So this band really kind of started in 1999. They were really active for about three years broke up or went in hiatus, more or less, then got back together again in 2005 and, again, totally unbeknownst to me, are still a band, are still going. I, I, that really took me aback. They they do, to date, have one proper album and then another album that sort of sneaked out to fans and then wider release. And, the, you know, they had a re-release that had a sort of bonus album. But they've only really got one in earnest properly released record mm-hmm. and yet 22 years later they're still playing um, it's a fascinating case study uh, I guess we should probably do a little bit of due diligence in terms of the background of them they were from in and around London, Some uh, the members the permanent members, some Wardner Ravi Kesavaram. Uh, they met when they were at University College London I believe one of them was doing genetics And one of them was doing biochemistry uh, But I often wonder as well Do do these musicians ever go back to those careers? You know, because you have a band for two or three years Then after 2002, do you go and spend eight years in a lab I don't know, researching genomes and oh. RNA and things
1: Greg Graffin's done it, Milo from Descendants That text to Holland's fucking yeah. done it You know, I mean, he could, he could conceivably be one of the people responsible for curing AIDS. <laughs> you know, <and> it. <laughs> Did, like, so, <laughs> did they things stop things playing, that? though, at the same time? Well... Did they, they not keep touring or not? Well, Milo My- left Descendants to pursue an academic, academic career. Then, much later on, we joined them. Dexter, well, the offspring have been were inactive for, a, inactive for a very long time. Whilst well, he was probably a millionaire, I hasten to add, that at the same time. Greg Graffin, well, he... I don't... I think there was... We've done a bad version the episode. There was not a very huge amount of time between records. He was just just happened to be a professor that could also just fuck off on the road, do bad religion whenever he wanted to, you know? Um, do you think you can um, wander into a lab somewhere
2: down south and see some wardener with like, a pair of goggles and a mesh black T-shirt like, <laughs> and a, a Petri dish in one hand and a dropper in the other? I, I just, I think it's strange that they invest so much time in their education and then do they do they just abandon it? I don't really know. They're still playing 22 years later. Um Basically early on They recruited someone called Seth Taylor And uh, who was there Carolyn Bannister was the original bassist Wasn't she And then they did an EP called Delusions of Grandeur Uh, Sorry no they did the EP actually as a duo Before they recruited the other two But uh, gave that to Steve Lamac, I think in person somewhere down in London, um, and he played it and they got a lot of interest, but then they kind of paused the whole thing and went back and finished their uni stuff. So it's just interesting that, you you know, you go to all that trouble and <laughs> you just... Fuck it off Um, It's not very exciting but if I ever actually met them That would probably be my first question
3: (laughs) Do do you do any biochemistry these days? Well I did meet some And I wish I did ask him that now I don't know why I didn't say where have you been Um, Because I saw them play in um, 2017 In the rescue rooms in Nottingham and yeah, and and it, it was, he just was very huggy and I was a little bit overwhelmed, I think, um, which is, which sounds really lame. But um, yeah, I should have asked him that, really.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so they, they took that name, my vitriol, from the, the novel is it Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? I So they gave that disc to Lamac and I'm guessing it was a disc, maybe even a cassette. The the Seth Taylor and Carolyn Bannister had been recruited from the, the I think the remnants of a, a group called Mint Four Hundred that had recently broken up, um, and. Really early on, they released a debut single, uh, which actually, both tracks appear in this record, and I think in a different form, Always Your Way and Pieces, uh, and that came out on Org Records uh, in 1999, just in December 1999. Interestingly aside, Org Records, it's a a label that I don't think has ever come up in the show before, but it's a label that I remember really vividly from when I was younger. I remember sending demos to them, for starters, in my early uh, years. They had a bunch of samplers that they used to call the organ, and they all had like themed names to do with these character, this character Susie and sharks. Um, So, and they all had on the front of their releases uh, in quotes, "kissing big ugly sharks" since nineteen eighty six, which I'm guessing was some sort of reference to corporate record labels or something or or other. one in particular Get Out The Pool Susie there's big ugly sharks in there Um, but they were really quite iconic you used to get them in the kind of second hand bins in a lot of shops uh, that people had sort of traded in but you'd find some really great stuff in it Um, some of the bands that they worked with included The Cardiacs who I think are a band that will almost certainly come across in this show at some point Uh quite a significant band in the kind of UK underground at that time. Uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre, they were the other half of that documentary Dig with Andy Warhols mm. um, The Monsoon Bassoon, uh, a really cult band. When I was growing up, Dream City Film Club and the singer Michael J. Shea. Uh, Breed 77 of all things 377, uh, wow, yeah, yeah, dealt with them in the early days more than once as well. At uh, One Minute Silence, as well, oh, uh, Rachel, S- <laughs> Rachel Stamp, who we've mentioned, the kind of glam rock band, uh, and Raging Speedtorn were actually in one of them oh, as well. Really? Wow, it's wow, um, like yeah,
3: the who's who of early 2000s hardcore new metal, basically, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? I mean,
2: Org was like a really, I, mean, I think, really pretty cool, and it had like a real punk spirit about it. The covers of the Wii discs all looked like, the design of them looked like a hand montage of, like, cut-up newspapers and stuff like that. There was something very rugged and and organic about it, and, well, organ. Um, Mm. But, yeah, if you come across those, they make really interesting listening. You get a lot of, like, rarities and stuff, and actually, I know that my vitriol later on in their career went back and Mm. released some stuff with Org. Uh, So, yeah, it's worth worth having a wee uh, investigation of. But, yeah, uh, even though that, Split came out on I think, 6th of December 1999 In 1999 the band On the back of the interest from the Lamax stuff Had already, uh, they signed to Infectious Now at that point They'd only played 7 fucking concerts And they were signing to Infectious Records mm. We will come back to this This is going to be a key theme <laughs> uh, in this um, But yeah, so clearly early on They had a lot of momentum a lot I mean, momentum to the extent where they were having to postpone the band to finish their course because it was getting in the road that's an enviable position for anybody um i'm not sure that' uh, be mark is this a totally is this
1: a new Band to you? Had you come across these guys in your adventures of teenhood? Um, So I had. When I was growing up, my my family never had sky or satellite. We were too poor for that. So I would always be around someone else's house, and they had. Mark
2: used to draw Prince videos on a blackboard with chalk (laughs) that he stole for school. That was how he watched music television, and and his mum would. his mum would slap him on the back of the head if he didn't get the prince
1: the right height. Pretend
2: it was Is, is this where the, like, the,
3: yeah, the yeah. prince alarm comes in? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely! And I'm glad it wasn't me that made it happen. Um, I think, oh, was it losing touch? Maybe. It's
0: the finest day, yeah. I'm gonna do-
1: Yeah, that was a pretty big single for yeah, me. I, yeah. I remember seeing that uh, on crying TV and thinking, okay." But I was really into New Metal at that time, so uh, this just totally was like not not my jam at all. Uh, I was actually just getting into like Killswitch Engage, and I was really starting to explore. Uh, hardcore and I guess Swedish death metal to an extent as well. But but his, his family were so poor that he couldn't afford a red backwards
2: cap. <laughs> so his ma got a bowl and she painted it red and then sat it on his head. I actually did have s- a red backwards cap. Funny <laughs> enough. Who <laughs> <laughs> um, did you
1: steal it off? You <laughs> well, you know. So
3: so what about three dollar bill y'all for an episode? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> Dave's probably had that in his back pocket for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember hearing that song and then it was not really for me. And I remember I was a crank reader probably up until the mid two thousands, and I remember they becoming a bit of a joke because their second album was never coming right. It was not. It was never happening. And Chinese Democracy wasn't really a joke at that point. <laughs> People kind of <laughs> like Cousin Roses Roses had stopped. Had basically, functionally stopped being a band. And at that time, f- listening back to this, it also made me think about the band in me who I think share quite a lot of similarities sonically yeah, with them. Yeah, th- I mean, yeah, there on their is on first <laughs> But yeah, I remember them being a bit of a joke in some circles because their, their, their album was always delayed, or second album was always delayed. Um, I just thought it would stop being a band and just completely vanished from my memory until until Neil decided to, to bring it into my life again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have, I have to say, like, they, they weren't a joke to me. And, and I was actually
2: really on side with this band when they first appeared. It was, there was a lot of, like, Honky Luddite shit about then You know there's a lot of like Stompy, daft, ugly, clumsy New metal And so stuff like My Vitriol Was a fairly welcome diversion And especially as it seemed to sort of, um, sort of Synthesise a whole bunch of Influences that was quite into it But none of whom Always got everything right So there's a lot of Smashing Pumpkins in them And you know I've made it clear I think Melancholy and Infinite Sadness Is fucking fantastic but I was also very clear that that band often got a lot of things wrong in their career. I think Deftones are a great band, but there was a lot of stuff that Deftones put out that didn't age very well. They, they seemed to take some good ideas from different places and combine them quite well. And early on, they showed an awful lot of promise. But it was such an unprecedented level of breakthrough success on the back of not very much. So, I mean, by two th- in 2000 alone, which is their first year, they don't have an album they toured with Kay, The Crockett's Darkstar, uh, Wilt Perfect Circle, King Adora Crackout, Manson Vast, they did a European tour with Feeder, a European tour with Ash and they also did at least one big show with Deftones Um, and That is, I mean, to get on any of those bills, let alone all those bills for such a young band, a band that's not been about for more than 18 months, doesn't have a full length to their name. I mean, it's like you realise that, right, something's up here. We can all have our own opinions on, you know, the right and wrong paths to success, but something is definitely up there. That doesn't happen by accident. These are coveted bills to be on. And looking back in that now, I do wonder, like, holy fucking shit, that must surely have burnt them out. And I was mm-hmm. looking through some of the comment sections of different videos, you know, cause fans will go on and reminisce about how much they loved them and stuff. And I saw that as a theme recurring, like this band completely burnt out in, in the first couple of years by the, by the time they were playing in 2002, there's some videos of them doing some festivals and the fans commenting under it are, you can see how jaded they are. You can see how fed up and, and just completely frazzled, the band is on stage, they've already been, they they, they desperately needed a break. And it seemed like they, when they announced that hiatus in 2002, they, they were just like, fucking hell, this is going to kill us. We need to stop. And then just never really quite found the energy to get back into it again. You know, um, that that's, that's a narrative that really emerged for me kind of like later on in my research of this because I was... It was all very abstract and then, as a, in, a, in a human sense, put myself in their position. That is like, it's very exciting, yes, but it's very, very demanding
3: as well. Do you think, it's really interesting what you were saying there, um, but just thinking about what you've said and like sort of the, the history of alternative music, you may see where I'm going with this, but do you think that was like a bit of push and pressure on trying to get the next thing and maybe they thought maybe my vitriol might be the next thing i mean they did have two appearances on top on top of the pops for god's sake which is really weird in my opinion for a band like that um it i don't know they were they all live was,
1: and kicking as well they were live and kicking. were they
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> fucking,
1: fucking yeah
3: um, live you know you said you haven't heard the words <laughs> my vitriol put together for while. <laughs> mine was <laughs> live and kicking i'm like well fuck <laughs> but um
2: yeah, I, be, I think the phrase I would use to describe this is like silver spoon bands, okay? Bands that very early on in their existence seem like they've been born in a silver, with a silver spoon in their mouth, which is the opposite of Mark, who didn't see an actual spoon until he was <laughs> in his late, late teens. Such was the level of poverty in his family at an early age. I mean, early 20s, mate, early 20s. But I think it, they fall into this glorious or, well... Inglorious category in that sense, as I said, signed after seven gigs. Um, and I think looking back in that, it does invite a lot of questions, Neil. Like, first of all, were they given that prominence because somebody was just so overwhelmed by the talent that they showed? Was it maybe more that uh, it says more about the industry's belief in its ability to make something successful than it does maybe the inherent quality of the artists themselves? Um, I mean obviously it's slightly different now But we still have things like the hype machine and stuff now That effectively are aggregators of consensus They almost give us a meta view Of the narratives that are taking shape in the media So these narratives still happen And in the past they were just a little bit more abstract Because you couldn't see them all grouped in one place And now we literally have a website such as the hype machine Where it specifically groups all the narratives in one place And you can actually see, holy shit there's a silver spoon band emerging. They have been picked out by a series of journalists. There's an emperor's new clothes thing happening, and you can see it in real time. And as soon as a band, it's got it's got a real uh, what is the phrase for that? It, it achieves like the um, critical like a critical mass where it. it It gets to a certain level and then the fact that they're hyped creates more hype and it all just exponentially compounds. And and so you see bands just suddenly fly up the rankings of what people are talking about. And my vitro were definitely one of them. Did they demonstrate in the subsequent years the, the kind of talent that would have justified that level of hype? I would say probably not. But they didn't. That's they didn't actually put a lot out, so it's it's kind of hard to arrive at that. You have to pick through scraps to really get there. Um, and as I said, I mean, I am tempted to think that perhaps that sudden and dramatic success in their case was maybe a bit too much for them. It seems like early on they hit it so hard, and for such young musicians in the industry, um, I, I do believe there was a bit of dubiety about their quality lives. Some people obviously. Fans of them already loved them live. Others said they were very sloppy. It was clear that they were a studio band, and they were working, in fairness, with some very good producers who can make anybody sound good. Really, um, I think uh, there's uh, loads of famous quotes about this kind of thing. Steve Albini's got a, a particularly good one. Um, I think it's DIY or Die when he he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something along the lines of, "The more something is forced down my throat, the more suspicious I am of it." Um, and it actually breeds a sort of resentment at the band within a certain contingent in the music scene and the audience where they have to overcome the sudden levels of doubt. I mean, there's there's loads of bands that have, that have gone through this same process. It'd be interesting to get you guys' opinions on this, actually. Let's, let's say, take it from a Scottish perspective, uh, I would say Twilight Sad are a good example. That's a band that did four shows before they got signed and at least one, maybe two of those shows were sort of experimental tape look things they weren't even like full gigs. And she's
0: playing Um
2: Franz Ferdinand up here famously I think they basically just did a series of kind of cool warehouse parties, not even formal shows before they got signed. Um churches had done a, a series of concerts under like a, a fake name Like kind of rehearsal concerts They were called Shark Week um, And then I think they had one showcase before they announced their deal um, So there are, there are cases like that Of bands who get that sort of silver spoon treatment Who go on to varying degrees of success I think by contrast up here Like the Twin Atlantic As much as they've got plenty of detractors up here Because of the style of music they do They spent years in the trenches doing support gigs. Uh, I mean, in fairness, Biffy Clyro, probably they they did the same, spent a long time building up a reputation. People have been known to criticise them, Mark. Yeah, just a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there is, I mean, clearly there is no one right method... And also, uh, the results are not guaranteed. The bands that get the silver spoon treatment end up incurring a lot of debt in the process and debt can lead to compelled, you know, touring obligation to do such and such, travel far and wide to satisfy the label's demands because you owe them a ton of money. Um, So I I would maybe ask you guys, in your opinions, while we're on this subject, can you think of some examples of this that worked? So I would say, for example, Twilight Sad seems to have worked they got a lot of interest early on but they went on to a fairly consistent and sort of modest level success they never like scaled the heights of like daytime telly the way my vitriol did but they've had a fairly stable level in their career i would say maybe arcade fire are an example of a kind of early burst of success that that endured muse probably there's there's Um, a scottish
3: band that comes to mind funnily enough um I don't know how much time they spent in the trenches, but they kind of, like, hit a high point not long after, well, high point commercially, that is, after um, after my vitriol, you know, early 2000s. Any idea who, who I might be talking about there? Mm, no. Idlewild, uh, would you say? Oh, yeah.
2: So. Yeah. The, thing, the thing is, see, I know for a fact, because I was on the scene at the time, there was a point where Idlewild were doing, I think it was about 150 shows a year. And I mean literally playing every two or three nights in Scotland, especially around about Edinburgh and Glasgow, they were constantly doing gigs. And so whilst yeah, when the Captain EP landed, Kerrang picked up in it, and then obviously uh, the first album came out and they were they they got on the ladder. I
0: know what like you say.
2: They had been a thing for quite a while And they had been a really hard working thing For quite a while I would probably say in fact Idlewilds It wasn't as protracted as Twin Atlantic's But they certainly did an, probably a, a
3: similar number of shows Right In the build up to it I i don't know I mean I, I don't know who who comes to mind I mean there's th- what, what does come to mind Because you, you say Name some bands that perhaps kept that endurance Or kept going But all the ones that are coming to mind seem to drop off they um,
2: drop off So there's so many I mean Gay Dad Anyone remember them?
1: Actually I, I do have I do have a couple That, <laughs> I, that I think have managed to sustain success The Strokes yeah? Being one of the ones That came to my mind That's, that's a good That's yeah. a that's a very good one Quite immediately right? Because they literally Came out of nowhere For me I kind of get The same sense With Block Party as well They kind of just emerged from London And then just Fucking seemed to Just mm-hmm. suddenly become Really big really quickly uh, I guess Muse. you already mentioned Muse, Coldplay as well I remember Yellow be on the telly, you know, and yep. then suddenly they're one of the biggest bands in the world and they still are. The same could be said for Snow Patrol, I suppose. Well, no, 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 I don't think it could because Snow Patrol had two
2: albums before yeah, I was going any to say, hit yeah, albums was- and a bunch of EPs and stuff. I remember hearing them years prior on the radio shows up here when they were just wee guys up in Dundee jamming away. So, no, I mean, I, I don't think they fall quite into the same category. I don't know what changed for them, mm-hmm. though. You're right. There was
1: a sudden... Explosion of interest in them, but I don't know where that came from. And one of the biggest ones for me, and it was so big and it happened so quickly that people were asking if they're a manufactured band was Lincoln Park. You know, it, it was it yep. was a meet, it was a meteoric rise that happened just completely like band on a major label. <laughs> meteoric, yeah, exactly. See, see, what I did there, <laughs> um, unintended. <laughs> uh, and yeah, then suddenly they went from like having like music all over the TV, all over like and crying and stuff to doing a, a collaborative album with with Jay Z. You know, and then doing massive tours. It seemed to what's, come together really. Was Lincoln Park not a manufactured band? Was no. it not
2: that they had the two, the two members, and then they built a band around them?
1: No, no, there were two different bands that came together, basically. Ah. Um, see, but they, they, apparently the myth still exists to this day. You know, and should,
2: yeah, I mean they're fucking humming, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. well, examples of those that failed. Um, a, a really good one is the bravery.
1: Yes. Remember them? Yeah. yeah.
2: They were mega hyped that, that that was in the back of that kind of new rave, kind of second wave of like more Kelsey kind of vibe, glamier and Cynthia. yeah. But like the Claxons as well. Mm. Um, I feel like the Claxons probably lasted slightly longer than the Bravery. Um, the band Towers of London, remember that? Oh, yeah, Johnny, was oh dear,
3: <laughs> what's that guy's name? Johnny, Johnny something. Yeah, the guy who was on Buzzcocks and He was on Buzzcocks, yeah Buzzcocks yeah, or, made yeah. a complete tit of himself, yeah, yeah. there's was him
1: um, There's a band called The Drums Who were kind of big, briefly Speaking um, of I, Buzzcocks and making a tit yourself The Ordinary Boys <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true um, the, the Twang
0: I think that it was just a
3: phase my whole changed. I've even feeling strange I can
0: understand why you was now why should you be the one who has to lose that? just cuz I'm one I said I'm always gonna have things going
2: on yes. yeah, now these guys are like a famous example of this cuz I was looking this up and they came up in a number of lists it's hugely hyped by the enemy on the basis of a few demos early on. And their debut album did hit number three, but then the next one got to number 20, the next one got to number 52, and they just kind of vanished. And I think even the debut album was, its reception was very underwhelming. It got to number three, but that wasn't really... Telling the full story of how people felt about it, um, I kind of get the feeling actually of my vitriol had followed it may have gone a similar route. But um, Test Icicles, you know that guy Dev Hines that went on to do Blood Orange and Lightspeed Champion, yeah, he, he wrote he wrote songs for Solange. Like Test Icicles were hyped to fuck. I remember and they just did mm. nothing. Yeah, um, and the, the the last one that I saw in a couple of lists was Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. Remember that band? Mm-hmm. That name everywhere. Another big enemy push that kind of slid out of you really, really quickly. And I think the consistent thing is that a lot of these bands were based in big cities. The Strokes are based in New York. The ones that we're talking about tended to be based in London. Um, Bravery was an LA band, I think. And it's, it's these places where you have a conflation of industry bods who can they really be bothered doing their fucking job properly. So they all just agree to kind of focus on one thing and nobody wants to be the last one to pick up on this thing. So they all just get on the same wagon and the band ends up benefiting from essentially the the laziness (laughs) of so many journalists. Um, And yeah, some of them have fairly interesting early moments in their career and certainly some of them pan out, Arcade Fire for example, but so many of them don't. Are My Vitro One of those bands Neil Do you think They would have had A stunning Second record in them You know What I mean It's not I know they brought out Stuff later on But if they'd kept The momentum And actually Say 18 months after Brought out a second record How do you think It would have gone
3: I don't know That's the honest answer Because it could Obviously it could go Either either way Couldn't it They could have Was their sound a bit too In the box as in like not I don't know if it would have translated As well carried on into the Into the mid 2000s you know Before I carry on with that There's one band that I want to mention That was JJ72 Do you remember those guys?
2: Yeah, they're, right. they're a good example now, of that as well. Now, we mentioned them in the Muse episode. Yeah, we did.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it, it might have been, I haven't listened to um, the second part of that. Yet,
0: of so. his <laughs> <vocal>. <laughs> I
2: can
3: Most see the great comparison.
2: It's Vocal, even worse <laughs> than fucking Matt Bellamy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, so, so they're a band that kind of had a lot of success early on and then just crashed. Now, they they crashed on their second album. So My Vitruel could have had the potential to do that because I think. Chris, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I think like that era, the first couple of years of the 2000s really had this kind of indie sound and then fast forward to like Arcade Fire, Strokes kind of time. Well, maybe not Strokes kind of time because they, they were like 2001, but that those kind of bands like The Twang and everything, it was just a very different kind of market commercially, I think. And it, I don't think there was much places much of a place for British harder bands. JJ and sort of uh, you know obviously my vitriol they those even I know wild really they're they're a the bit of a harder touch and i just don't think that was really happening commercially a bit later yeah, on I mean,
2: so well, loads, of, lo- loads of american emo took over as well didn't
1: it? Uh-huh. Yeah. i think my vitriol were unfortunate and they had a very american sound at a time when brightness was becoming more of the four like libertines for example that was that was happening around about the same time and i think Blech. yeah but I don't like Libertines either, but they are probably one of the most important British bands, right, of the past 25 years. You, Just as a result of the good and also mostly the bad that they've they've kind of spawned. Um, yeah. And I think there's that, and also that whole American emo thing was suddenly becoming big in my vitriol. We're just like, well, we've already got the Foo Fighters, you know, we don't really need a shoe version of the Foo Fighters, and these guys are British. Yeah,
2: yeah Ash were burning
1: out it, at that point. Ash were kind of burning or going yeah. down at that point as well. You know, they, they lost of, their bit, yeah. They lost their way definitely. Yeah. So Sid, you've,
2: you've mentioned a couple of names that are quite interesting because when they first broke, yeah, there were a lot of lazy kind of like, comparisons to Nirvana and Foo Fighters. Um, others kind of mentioned this new gaze thing the most relevant comparisons as I said I think are Smashing Pumpkins yeah. given the kind of melodrama there was some noisier Sonic Youth moments and therefore Trailer Dead comparisons are relevant as well um, the band clearly liked to do the odd really cr- heavy crunchy moment and that kind of kept them in with Karang more more so- although they did okay with NME as well they had a good kind of foot in both uh, sides there um, they seemed to fit quite well uh, with Deftones, uh, given especially that Deftones liked lighter stuff, and both bands seemed quite happy to admit to like enjoying The Smiths and cocktail Twins and stuff. And for that reason, I guess Perfect Circles and other kind of good comparison. They also their covers are quite telling of what they like. They ended up doing an Elliot Smith cover in two thousand and three. They'd done covers of Jawbox. They'd done covers of the Wipers. They'd also they did a, a Madonna cover at one point as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, musically, they did hit a middle ground that probably also gave them a, a slightly more balanced gender fan base. Um, mm. Certainly a lot of the people I knew that liked them were, were female, and and that was interesting because that couldn't be said of a lot of bands in that era. Uh, like, new metal was very, very much about machismo and fucking stupidity. Um, we should probably, just to get it out the road as well, with this, this term, new gaze, um, this album is kind of hailed as... The first album of New Gaze, which went on to be a bit of a thing. Uh, the term itself seems to actually descend from a 2001 Goldfleet paint interview with some from My Vitriol, where it, it was said that they were a shoegaze band and he kind of laughed at it and kind of tongue in cheek, especially given the background on New Metal at the time, said, well, I guess you could maybe call it as New Gaze as a joke. And that kind of became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um The most cited examples of new gays online tend to come a bit after them. I would say they're like Deerhunter, Silversum Pickups, M83 are in there. Uh, There are some bands from prior, like Blonde Redhead and Brian Jonestown Massacre, but I think they're pretty misleading. Blonde Redhead's early stuff sounds like fucking Fugazi. Their later stuff is like Dream Pop. Brian Jonestown Massacre, I've got that kind of blues psych thing going on, like 13th Floor Elevators and stuff. I don't think that's a great comparison. Um, There are later groups... That do it much more accurately at uh, Twilight Sad, uh, Ringo Death Star, Pains of Being Pure at Heart. Hard, the, eyes, the categorization thing, yeah, you're probably right, Mark. They did, they landed at a funny time where were they going to end up when the tides changed in music that's true but you know it was their first album their their sound could have changed a bit as well as as you know muse's sound certainly adapted as they got older it would have been easy to ask the same question of them mm. so i'm 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 not sure that necessarily would deal a blow it seems more that it came from within the band
1: yeah i was I was, yeah. I was going to say like they also came at a time when there was a huge major label freed, feeding frenzy signing up acts right left and center of all genres Just and then the arse fell about. out yet
2: two years later though yeah. man because 2003 2004 was the first big dip when the the broadband thing started to happen and all the file sharing started to really get destructive to the economics of yeah. it um, I'd, can can we just can we revisit something Neil was talking about earlier on? Neil, you mentioned that crying CD, crying yeah. best of two thousand and one. You, you find it in loads of charity shops and stuff now. Uh, as you said, they had the track Vapor Trails on it. Now, first and foremost, I think it's strange that they chose that track for this because that track's not on this album. And every single other band that's on that double disc has used probably their biggest song on that double disc and my vitriol who probably stood to benefit the most arguably out of all of those bands by being in that company didn't use their biggest track, which I would have suggested might've been always your way at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an odd choice. So to give you some examples like that, that album amongst many more features Foo Fighters, Papa Roach Slipknot Hole American Hi-Fi flavor of the Week obviously S- uh, Ramstein, Limp Bizkit with fucking rolling mm-hmm. uh, Linkin Park Crawling uh, Marilyn Manson Blink 182s Rock Show Wheatness with a little respect Muse's Plug In Baby so again best foot forward Feeder Weezer Bloodhound Gang, fucking Kid Rock and fucking Nickelback and you're on a a, a disc by the way, does that not tell you what a horrible year 2001 was but <laughs> you're on a disc like that and all these bands are really giving it their biggest right hook, you know, trying to really make it count and my vitriol come on there and put a, re- a song on that, albeit you liked it, it wasn't on the record That wasn't necessarily going to sell the record and I'm not convinced that it was a best foot forward. What? What was it? I, I find that tune like a little bit derivative. Actually, I think it's a bit too close to the Nirvana comparisons.
0: The same to,
2: to. I'm confused about why they chose to put that. That. That song on there
3: The only thing I can think of With everything you've just said Is that I mean Can you hear the song in your head If you listen to it Can you remember that opening riff It's quite vicious And with with the climate of Alternative rock music at the time Maybe that was just a better match Maybe Always Your Way Cemented Shoes Grounded Were a bit too indie For a crown compilation Maybe That's a fair
2: point That's a good point But it is a very odd It's a missed opportunity I would suggest you know, I think they could have really sold a lot of records by putting one of the really catchy songs on there. Um, but yeah, so that same year, they, by the before their uh, hiatus, they'd gone on tour with Placebo, um, and they were on tour uh, supported by Queen, Adrena, and Wilt. And it's interesting that less than a year prior, they'd been supporting Wilt on tour. So it shows how far they'd gone. And yeah, that must have been a weird feeling for Wilt, by the way. <laughs> to, you know, within 12 months to be opening for the band That was opening for you um, And then coincidentally They announced uh, the hiatus on stage At the Kerrang Weekender event in 2002 um, After Fine Lines you guys spoke about it briefly The rumours circulated they were going to do a second album They were recording with a guy Colin Richardson Who's usually associated with much heavier bands So like Cannibal Corpse, Slipknot, Fear Factory Bullet from My Valentine That record was supposed to be coming out in two thousand and four. It didn't. Needless to say, Uh, they played one small show in two thousand and five. Carolyn Bannister left; was replaced by um, Laura Salmon. Uh, They played, I think, a one-off show at Coco in London in two thousand and six. Then they did like a slightly strange thing: they released a mystery kind of limited edition single called "This Time" under the name A Secret Society. On that org label that we talked about earlier on Which I think might have been a gesture to them Thanking them for the support or whatever Uh, Early 2007 they followed that with a Pyrrhic Victory EP On Extra Mile Recordings Uh, They played a bunch of festivals across 2008-2009 Including Download They also actually played the final show ever held at London Astoria Before that closed 2013 played a show at Coco after a long hiatus Seth Taylor briefly left for family reasons rejoined Laura Salmon was replaced on base by Tatia Starkey, who, by the way Is the granddaughter of Ringo Starr mm-hmm. Which uh, I just thought was Nexus Gold, but apparently not <laughs> um, And uh, Then this whole thing with, like 2013 they started a pledge funder Campaign um, for what Eventually became a limited fan Release of The Secret Sessions And that went on to like a Wider general release in 2016-2017 onwards It's an odd trajectory for a band that literally, absolutely, fucking, like went into stratosphere within the first nine months.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's unusual and it's also really interesting. To Decided to keep doing stuff and still getting decent gigs, you know, and playing decent venues and getting on festivals and stuff, despite the fact they hadn't released anything new for over, almost a decade. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty weird, I think. I mean, I, I I mentioned earlier on that I did originally root
2: for them. I also, thinking back, quite quickly changed my stance I think especially being in a band at the time I grew very quickly to resent the sort of breaks that they'd gotten mm. At such an early stage and how little they'd done with that That really infuriated me Because, you know, we were scraping and crawling And begging for every little scrap we could get And these these folk had been just handed all this profile And all this opportunity Gigs with the best bands in the world and it just it it, it was a little bit sickening at the time. Um you know uh, I mean
1: at the time Chino Moreno called on the best band in the world.
2: Which is I mean, st- can staggering. you imagine imagine dangling that in front of any of us <laughs> who are like eighteen years old? By the way, here you go, here's what Chino Moreno's gonna say about your band. It's just it's fucking staggering <laughs> at the start. There is absolutely no way on earth. That they were unsung in their moment um, I, I I, mean Maybe they're unsung Overall because this is before we get into the album But maybe they, they are as a product unsung overall But it's kind of by virtue of them Doing very little And I am um, This is the unsung podcast Not the underachievers podcast mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to have your work cut out Uh, So it's maybe about about time for us to actually dig into the album a wee bit, Neil.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, well, one thing I want to say before we do that is um, because this album is quite dear to me, and even I've listened to a lot, obviously, in the build-up to this podcast, and I don't think it's like a masterpiece or anything like that, and I've come to realise that far, far from it, but I think... And there must be bands. There must be bands and artists that you guys feel this way about. But I think I've got a fear of people forgetting about them because they were so dear to me. Um, Do you know what I mean? And I think that's why I made the decision to choose this album. Um, They don't have, like... I don't know because of a lack of discography. They don't have like many reference points to say like Idlewild Wild or uh, their contemporaries. You know whoever the Trial of the Dead, for example. You know whoever. Um, even even do you remember that band Seafood who were also on Infectious Records.
2: Absolutely, man I, You know, I loved Seafood I, I got every record by them Right up until their
3: fourth or fifth Then I kind of drifted away Oh, really? Okay uh, I'm only familiar with the um, Is it When Do We Start Fighting? The one with the uh, yeah. yeah The Bluish cover yeah. um, that Which is a really good album um, But even, even they've got something You can sort of dive into, I guess You know, there's a couple of albums there um, But f- literally this band have got One proper album They've got a B-Sides compilation, I guess um, And Something that's a bit sort of ragged together that came many, many, many years later, way after their heyday. Um, yeah. And and, and and I think you know, yeah. Given that they, even though that yes they had, like you said, they certainly weren't unsung at the time. I think they were. They fell off the cliff very quick. And um, and there was there was a lot going for this band that I think a lot of their sort of peers and the climate at the time just didn't have. I.e., you know, this was the height of new metal. And pop mm-hmm. punk, arguably as well, uh, but a certain a certain era of pop punk, anyway. And I, I just think yeah. I, in the in the midst of everything, I think that this this is these are one of the bands that stood out, particularly the fact that they are from it, um, from the UK as well.
1: Yeah, uh, so it begins with Alpha Waves, which has got that kind of woozy, dreamy kind of my body Valentine feel. I quite like a lot of the guitar tones on this album, and I really like the guitar tone on this. As a result, it's a nice wee intro, one of several interludes on this record. <laughs> it's it's a statement though. I mean, it's more about purpose than it is about the song, isn't it? Yeah. It's like
2: they're saying we're not just going to go straight into a big single. We are not that band. We're a much more kind of grandiose. You know that I don't say pretentious because that's kind of like derogatory, but. That, well, they're making clear that it's it's mm. got high, greater ambitions than just a series of catchy mm. tunes.
1: Like you say, you are setting out your stall and saying, "Hey, we're we're trying something here, not just ten songs, and mm. four of them are the singles we've released already." You know,
2: and there's loads of good albums that have a weird opening track that is basically trying to get you in a certain headspace. So, mm-hmm. it, it 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 isn't it doesn't register as a miss for me in so much as it's just an, it is a, literally an intro.
3: Yeah, yeah. It, maybe you should have intro in brackets next to it. It's got that, you know. Yeah. particularly the way it leads into the next track as well. Which is yeah, a, and the
2: next tracks where the album
1: starts in earnest because mm-hmm. the next tracks where it where it's all about. This was their mega hit, right? A mega hit. What was your quote, way quote unquote mega hit. Quite did of TV shows It reminds me more of the Foo Fighters and Smashing Pumpkins But I think they're both in there to be honest The lead guitar is pure colour The colour and the shape era Foo Fighters for me The verses are very Smashing Pumpkins There's even a bit of ash in it I think um, I think it's a really good rock song I think it's a bit too long I think it's maybe a minute too long to be honest But on the whole I think it's quite cool, quite catchy
2: I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a tad unfair I mean maybe that's just because of my perspective on Foo Fighters But I think Certainly out the gates, this song's got a lot more in common with Sonic Youth uh, and, and Trilla Dead. It's a lot more interesting and edgy than the kind of things that Foo Fighters and Ash... Well, no, Ash is more complicated. Just see, let's just say Foo Fighters. Uh, it's got a really simple structure. It comes in fast. In fact, it gets a lot of things done quite quickly. The verse is fine, but the chorus has a real jubilation to it mm-hmm. and is definitely one of the catchiest things that the band were involved in. Um, the as a band, generally, I think they use backing vocals and harmonies really well. Um, and I think this is probably their most satisfying tune. I think it stands up well actually as a, as a a record of that era. Um, and I, I mean, this maybe just underlines why I'm confused that this wasn't what they used in the likes of the Karang CD to really make a statement about what they were capable of. Because hey, I, it's a really good song.
3: It's interesting that you made that Ash comparison because when I was just sort of like listening to it, the one, this album in general, something that struck me that has never struck me really about it before is the lyrical content in general. It's a little bit juvenile. Um mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean the given the, the song title itself, you know, it, it it is a little bit on the on the juvenile side, but then you making that ash comparison, I can I can kind of see that. It's almost like I agree, so I got this like sort of Sonic Youth, pumpkins kind of vibe going on musically, but lyrically it's actually quite ash, sort of almost It's quite naive naive, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But you know what? When when you when you've been with an album for so long that certain songs just you know them that well that they're just they're just like a comfort blanket and always your ways like a bit like a comfort blanket for me do you know what I mean it, it's just that whatever it is it, it is what it is and uh, and and it, it it sounds good loud you know it's just one of those
1: yeah so the gentle art of choking which was actually I believe this is also a single. Um, it was a, it was this a, album's got five yeah. singles on no, it's it actually, It's yeah. actually six funnily enough Six fuck okay, yeah, yeah Mood, Mood Swings is a song they released with, as a double A side With the gentle art of choking Although Mood Swings isn't actually on this Which that's is bizarre
3: The B-Sides album isn't it? Between the Lines Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's I think that was probably released for American audiences Because they remastered this album And re-released it in America with uh, Between the Lines Between the Lines, yeah, 2002 Yeah, yeah. And this, was, really, this um, was released as a double A side single in 2002 um, so
2: this this has that sort of elegant but vaguely menacing title that I was totally lapping up at the age of like twenty twenty one you know it has that just air of the macabre about mm-hmm. it that I think is it, it doesn 't necessarily age very well, but you know it gets the job done at the time um uses loads and loads of really heavily phased and vibrato guitar um the soft vocal in it's really smashing pumpkins, and yeah. the second verse really emphasizes that. But the riffy interludes are actually really quite deaf tones. Turning, um, when he sings that first chorus, it momentarily sounds like Billy Corgan is singing on the track. Um, and actually the way he resolves the end of the line down the way is, is also a really Billy Corgan technique I think it's, it's wearing its is a little bit too uh, strong in its sleeve for, for my comfort um, I mean it's not bad but I do find it to be really quite a forgettable tune I would rather they'd loaded the start with something slightly stronger, maybe they think it's strong I'm sure they think it's strong but I I, I don't necessarily agree there's better later on
1: It seems to me like it would be a, a, a really good song to play in a band and also probably a live favourite as well which is probably why it's so early in the record.
3: Um, Absolutely. I mean, to me, I think it's interesting you say that because on my notes, I've got, this is the most my vitriol sounding song, if you know what I mean. This is the <laughs> most my vitriol one. Um I think it's because all, the, all those elements are sort of in, all the elements of fine lines are in this track, I think. Yeah, I mean in between where it lands in the album it kind of gets lost between what I think is the best song on the album which is coming up very very soon and um, because of that I've never been massive on it but it's um, it does the job very well
1: Mm. Is that song, yeah. do you think the best one, Coldstream?
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, little inter, a little interlude yeah. that does
2: almost nothing Instrumental
3: yeah. too, basically <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, Cementy choose. track five, let's just get to that Neil, <laughs> I've got a feeling you've got a lot of things to say about this
3: <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's probably one of my favourite songs of all time um, I adore this track, I always have <laughs> It's just a banger, I love it. It's just um love the chorus, love the way he, some wails the vocals across. I love the outro, the aggressiveness of the outro.
2: Gets an awful lot done really quickly. I mean it's like you a minute and ten in, you're already onto like a little guitar interlude, and then a minute thirty, you're already into like solo territory. I mean it albeit it's very simple alt rock soloing, but it, it it absolutely batters through the different checkpoints mm-hmm. in, in record time. Mm-hmm. It finishes with that really sort of Teenage Angst, anguished scream, and a joyfully excessive use of whammy pedal. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really big song for them. And it does also sound a lot like the era, and maybe would have been another candidate
1: for inclusion on the Kerrang thing. It was a single. The guitar sounds, in particular, for me, I think are really well chosen. And if that chorus hook really reminds me of the Foo Fighters. See, Foo Fighters,
2: man, if you're going to talk Foo Fighters, grounded, oh my God, the song that comes after this. Yeah. Even the chord structure in it Seems to kind of merit that, that All the Foo Fetter comparisons Even, in fact, it does that falsetto vocal thing mm-hmm. That Dave Grohl sometimes does In some of the kind of softer Foo Fetter's tracks I do not like Grounded at all of gets big and cheap and slutty, mm-hmm. and it, it just kind of epitomizes the way that um, my vitriol kind of promised a lot but too often went for these really unsatisfying musical uh, decisions. Although I realized that it was a pretty big single for them, I'm sure it works well in an arena capacity where you just
1: need space in the music for it to actually sound not like shit. I mean, I, I think that, that song, that the, the way that the, the kind of the verse reaches up into the chorus, it reminds me of Feeder.
2: They then go in a fucking jarringly uh, different direction for C O R. Was it corporate orientated drop? Critic, critic oriented Sorry, critic orientated drop. So this song absolutely rubs me up the wrong way, okay? And I'm sure I was lapping it up at the time because I was like, yeah, it's cynical, yeah. But it's, first of all, it's a tokenistic heavy track. It sounds a fucking lot like Deftones. It really goes for that uh, Carpenter tone. Um, from the title, it is clearly trying to satirise something. What the fuck is this song trying to satirise, okay? Critic-orientated rock. Is it saying that critics want heavy rock? Like Deftones? Is it saying that Deftones are critic-orientated rock? That seems a an unadvisable stance to take, given that you're playing with them and the singer says you're like the best band in the world. Is it saying that critics hate heavy rock? That certainly didn't seem to be the case at the time... At, like what was the fucking satirical point that this song was trying to make that's what I could never fucking get once I actually tried to find it out and as a result it just re- it just really annoys me as being really puerile and gestury like Whoa, we'll make this album like Teenage Angst and much like Teenage Angst it's poorly thought out and directionless and just sort of pissiness for the sake of pissiness with no actual
1: philosophy behind it
3: I think the um, wrist's pretty cool <laughs> Mm -hmm.
1: Well now that you say that (laughs) For me it sounds like a new metal song And I think that was the intention
3: I've actually got a bit new metal on my notes To be honest with you Chris I'm kind of with you I I, I never really understood it It's a bit messy It's a bit daft really isn't it And it hasn't aged well Yeah.
2: Yeah Funnily enough the track after it kind of sums that up Infantile The the song itself is like a It's kind of a shifting And strange alt-rock song Um, The the literally Whispered verses, like literally Whispered, must have made that track Almost impossible for them to perform live I can only imagine it wasn't in a live set Or it was done completely differently Uh, And I think the chorus flourishes are Really quite predictable
1: Sort of alt-rock landfill Mm, I completely agree It's got no real hook, it's kind of meandering I mean, I can see what they're going for. The whispered vocal has aged a bit like breakfast. To be honest, um.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree. That that it's a shame. The the hushed whispered vocals, yeah, they they haven't aged well. But I do think that chorus is pretty decent. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a good hook and it sounds quite huge and yeah. But in at the time, I did think this was one of the better songs on the album. But yeah, it's it's not it's not aged too well.
2: Uh, Ode to the Red Queen.
1: Is this, is this an actual Smashing Pumpkins song? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, you, you know, the funny thing is, I think the chord bending in this uh, initially sounds a lot more like My Bloody Valentine, especially Loveless in particular. Yeah, I but agree. Then, but the vocals are yeah. like, what? Wow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Once it drops into that verse, it is Peak Pumpkins, totally. Although this one has, I'd, I'd say, a pretty decent chorus melody in it. It's not bad, it's all of its time.
3: I mm, agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, Tongue Tied. Uh, The title referencing the fact that this tune is an instrumental uh, has a a really different pace and a different feel to the other songs. It lets the album breathe a bit. As a result... uh, This was actually one of the the tunes that I initially quite took to uh, with this band. It has some really interesting ideas and it shifts about in a way that they probably couldn't make work with a vocal and as a result I feel it kind of freed them up. They want to be able to kind of stretch their legs a little bit. The only thing is at this point the album's starting to get a little bit long. If you had omitted a couple of the tracks that we've sort of picked out as being a little bit weak I think this tune would have sat better. It doesn't Fares so well because it's I mean it's 10 out of 16 which by modern standards is really quite a lot
1: yeah I think if you were to take out a couple of tracks and had this as like the centrepiece the the literal middle of the record I think this would have uh, stood out more to me Um, it's a fun song I like the ebb and flow of it you know it, it <laughs> feels like it would be something again that you would have so much fun playing
3: I actually think this is one of the strongest songs in the album. Um, I think mm-hmm. this schizophrenic nature of it is quite fun, really. Um, and you know, when you it, it hits hard, you know, it hits hard when you listen to it quite loud. And um, yeah, I do like it. I do like it a lot. I think I think it's a good break for the album.
2: So as I say, the album is starting to get a little bit lengthy at this point, though. Um, Windows and walls, I think, is a totally unnecessary song. Occasionally, sounds a bit like early Muse without. Some of that kind of instrumental finesse, and I I I don't necessarily think it does any particularly well. It doesn't bring anything new to the party.
1: Yeah, um, there's some nice fuzzy guitars I think in it, which gives it <laughs> it gives it a kind of a weird dynamic. But it, 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 a song feels as though it doesn't really come together for me. It, it feels like it's got a lot of really good I- ideas, but it needed to work down more. They actually do an acoustic, quote unquote, acoustic version of it, which isn't acoustic at all. It's just a piano version of it on Between the Lines, which I think is better than this, to be honest.
3: Yeah, I was going to say that I prefer the piano version, probably because, Chris, what you just said, on a mark I established with you earlier today, I'm not a massive Muse fan... But yeah. if i'm if i'm going to listen to muse it's going to be showbiz personally um and this is quite showbiz muse particularly that outro and the distorted mm. bass that comes in, in like a bridgey kind of part of the um the yeah. song if you remember um but yeah yeah it's okay it's okay this is the this is the lull for me in the album yeah, yeah.
2: um the 12th one taprobane uh, or taprobane another i would say Unnecessary in- Instrumental interlude I appreciate It's the artistic vision Of the band That they're not gonna hurry That they want to create Atmosphere But sometimes That just comes To the detriment Of the other tracks I don't think This is required
1: Yeah this album's 48 minutes long There's songs you could lose You don't need to be Adding it, stuff to it It
2: feels longer To me mm-hmm. as well The thing is The good songs Absolutely fly by And the poorer songs I, I, They take up space that that, that that didn't need To be taken up Um Thankfully, they follow Tapro Band, Taprobane uh, with Losing Touch, which is a really big song for them. The
0: day, yeah. I'm gonna to
2: my um, again, the early guitar invites comparisons to both My Bloody Valentine and Sonic Youth, I would say. Um, the first verse cleverly shifts out of the minor key of the intro into a major key which is a pretty creative touch the verse itself is really hooky I'm a really big fan of people that put the hooks in verses and the chorus really just sort of becomes a shout along so
1: it's just a tune that I can imagine probably worked really well live, it would be a real crowd bouncer. This was the first single for the record, it feels just a really good choice for a first single if you want to get in with a rock crowd, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely Um, Yeah, I'm hearing the Sonic Youth comparisons at um so sort of like the closest thing they did to a punk tune as well, probably, um, with the speed of it and stuff. And the, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, just just a general point about some vocal isms. Um, those, well, what are your thoughts on those like sort of screamy grunts or new new metally almost grunts? I would say um, I don't know if grunts is the right term really, but or just belches really. Um, I mean, I don't know how well they've aged really looking back. I,
2: I've I've seen a lot of people say about how great and, and irritating his voice was. I don't find them to have a particularly grating voice. I mean, there's far worse out there, but it is a criticism that came up in a lot of negative press about the band.
1: Yeah, I I, I think I agree with that. I, I don't find his voice to be particularly egregious at all, if I'm honest. And yeah, maybe it, it feels as though it hasn't aged so well now because it was a it was a total thing bands were doing back then, just jump like chucking in these like occasional screams and making aggressive sounds and songs. Um it feels a little bit unrefined compared to modern bands, I suppose.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. fair enough. Sorry, I was just going to say, that, but he's, he's vocal, like, his general vocal, if you will. He's, he's quite nice, like you say. It's, it's not... Yeah, I'm just, uh, at least, I suppose, deep diving into it again. it was. I was surprised how many times he does it on this album.
1: It's definitely a... a I'm going to use the word infantile because it's, on, it's one of the names of the songs on the record, but it's very infantile. It's a very juvenile kind of thing to do. Uh, I imagine if they did a second album, there would have been a lot less of that. And there is a lot less of that on, this, on the Secret Sessions. Um... Pieces, uh, which was
2: actually the second track from that very, very early double A single. I think the the languid and slightly decadent way that song kind of flounces along is very Smash and Bumpkins, and they're more. You know, Baroque moments um, As a song I don't like it at all I think it is significant In their catalogue As a group I get that um, And I do get that It's also here Because with this They're trying to avoid Front loading the album Which would be a good idea I just don't think It's a particularly strong Bit of music
1: It feels as though Trying to quote trying to The indie crowd With this one um, The chorus doesn't Quite soar like it does In the other singles Which which for me makes it feel as though it's a weird choice for a single because all the other song, all the our singles are really well chosen and also happen to be the best songs on the album for the most part. At this point, I'm, it's hard for me to tell if I just if I'm just like tired of the album and I've lost objectivity, or if it's just genuinely not a good song. Um, falling
2: off the floor. Yeah. We're into what feels like long album territory now Although it is probably in fairness Only about the 40 minutes But it it gets a bit wearing Uh, So any song really coming in now Has to do something special To re-engage me Given it's the 15th piece Um, It has a much more American feel I think to the way that the vocal bounces And the verse jogs along There's something a lot more upbeat about it It has a big melodramatic chorus That's fine but it seems a little bit easy A little bit uninspired
3: Neil? I love this song um, along with mm-hmm. cemented shoes, this is like the the other track for me. Um, I know I kind of, I think I like a bit of melodrama sometimes, Chris, and uh, no, no, I think that this is this is where it it works for me. I think Rabbi Kesavaram. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing that terribly, but he's is, is a is a very prominent drummer, and um, and you hear it on this track. Um, and even though I was kind of saying like I'm not sure about some of his screeches, I think when he does do it, some that is um, towards the end of the song, I think it really works.
1: less like shoe gaze than the other songs in the album, I think, I, I kind of gave me an even bigger new metal new crunch comparison, but I say that it's not that's not even accurate. It just feels less dreamy than the shoegazy stuff that's on the album, I suppose. So I guess is the point I'm trying to make.
2: Um, and well, the opposite end of that spectrum, then, Under the Wheels, the, the final track, number 16, deep into shoegaze territory. Yeah. Um, I think the, the guitar and the drums in this swim around in some kind of like alt rock ether with Billy Corgan and Liz Fraser's jellyfish faces bobbing <laughs> past them. It's very sort of <laughs> fluid. Um, just before the two minute mark It bursts into uh, this, this part that is absolutely aligns it would Be Quiet and Drive by Deftones um, It's a useful track For placing them in a certain part of the musical Spectrum, the sonics in it are quite bold It has a real identifiable Sound, is it a good tune? No
3: mm-hmm. I think it's the Cocteau Twins song that never was Personally but I do like it um, Maybe I should listen to more Shoegaze because um yeah, maybe you should.
2: <laughs> there's plenty there's plenty of it, man, here. You have your work cut out. <laughs> My final thoughts on this. Uh My V Trail clearly had a lot of potential, right? By arriving with a a blend of a few great bands that a lot of people liked in limited measure, fusing it into a sound that worked really well for three or four minute pop singles and had commercial potential. Um, They had interesting ideas Especially with the guitars And an interesting sort of musical aesthetic Uh, For me, Mark you kind of touched on it there They rely far too much on some strong singles uh, Specifically Always Your Way and Losing Touch uh, For that cult reputation that they have The album doesn't really cut it elsewhere Although they are one of the the great anomalies Since the scene had been set for them For at least one or two follow-up records Um, So I would suggest it's perhaps more their potential that was unsung than their legacy. They do raise interesting questions about bands that are blessed from the start. uh, And as we said, in that way, they confirm a lot of cliches about things like the London-centric industry over here, New York and LA in the States. That all said, um, I do think it's kind of cool. There was a group which seemed like it had an open goal As far as mainstream success goes And instead they sort of just picked up the ball And walked off the pitch (laughs) It's a really interesting phenomenon In its its own right Uh, I mean at most I guess I can say That you know in that Kerrang CD That we keep going back to the best of 2001 They're unsung in that context
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It's a tough one for me because The album's far too long right that's th- that, that that sticks in my craw, as we say Yeah, it is only 48
2: minutes It's more that it feels yeah. long for
1: me There's six singles on this motherfucker, right?
2: <laughs> and yeah. well, well, are there though? I mean, I know there are literally But are there? No There's three yeah. or four good singles Yeah, but
1: I mean, if you think about it In terms of good songs to bad songs ratio There's probably only six on it, I would say Out of 16 Three of those are interludes and one's instrumental But I do like the single-minded ambition of the record You know, that they've taken... I know you said they took their ball and went home. Chris, Chris, but I would also say they've taken their ball and just played with them, played with themselves against the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like against the Missy, wall with the football. Missy. Yeah. Messi, we call it Mark. Yeah. yeah. So I, th- you know, that they decided to try and carve their own path, and I like that. I like the fact they've had ambition from the start, and they're on a semi-major label, so that like they were given the money to go away and do it. Um, I think for me, the next album or the or maybe even the third album would have been really fucking good. I'd like to have seen how they grew up as songwriters and as, as and as individuals because I think some is a good idea for a song and I think you could really develop that if' given a chance but also f- from what I've read it seems pretty clear that they did burn themselves out in a way which mm-hmm. meant there was no going back for them and that's unfortunate but I guess these things happen right so I think you should go into thisography just for posterity's sake I think we should have it in there because I don't want this band to be forgotten
2: well, that gives me a get-out clause because I can either abdicate or say no and it still won't matter. It's
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Neil, any closing thoughts?
3: Um, it was a very interesting discussion. I think you've brought up some really interesting points more about the state of music and how alternative rock, I guess, to really give a broad term, was sort of treated or... I don't know what the right word is there, but the sort of the, the, the outcome of how that was, I mean, it's just, it's just very interesting to look back as well, because like there, there would be no my vitriol today, would there? And, um, mm. and, 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 and that's something to think about as well. But, um but generally about the album, I think I, I I will I still love it. You know, it's got that kind of sentiment and juvenileness about it. But it, it's it reminds me of when I was that age, I guess. And it's got that it's got that sentiment. You know, some people have that about things like Dookie or fucking, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not coming to me right now, but um, those kind of albums. This is my Dookie, you know what I mean. This is the this is the yeah. album that I kind of uh, it reminds me of a time, and uh, and it stays with me despite its flaws.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that Dookie means shit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought Dookie, because you know, was, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, we've all got them, right? We've all, we've all got those <laughs> records. I think that's a, I think that's an important point you put on there. We all have, we do we all do have these albums, and we brought them up. We've each brought one of them to the table at some point, yeah. at least S- once. Santiago is that one. So. That's an anchor, yeah. Well, you know. Okay. Dave's, Dave's brought plenty, of, uh. yeah.
2: Uh, right, well, it's a very special time. Uh, this is when Mark and I shall Nexus your selection, Neil. Nexus. 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 Nexus.
3: Nexus. 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 Nexus
1: A complicated series
2: of connections between different things. So, for anyone that's not familiar, the Nexus is where, as a challenge, we try and join the artist of the week... To a figure selected by a member of the audience at random So we've got a pot of names here We pull a name out And then we try and find a sort of six degrees of separation Sometimes less, sometimes more And link it to that There are certain things that lesser hosts do Such as using films all the time That make that a little (laughs) bit easier Uh, We premium hosts Tend to try and make it a little bit more intellectual and also put as many Nazis into the equation as we can. So, uh, will it be yourself or
1: myself going first? Uh, Mine's is longer than yours, so, wow. Well.
2: Well, well. Does that mean you're... go oh, you first, I going first yeah, you go first. Okay, so this week we are nexusing to Lewis Grassick Gibbon, Scott's author. What's his real name, Mark?
1: Uh, his real name was James Leslie James Mitchell. James
2: Leslie Mitchell, mm-hmm. that's right. Well, well said. Clearly a, a graduate of literature there. Um, a Pyrrhic Victory EP came out in 2007. Now, the phrase A Pyrrhic Victory uh, is based on the life of Pyrrhus of Epirus. It, it basically means when a victory comes at such a devastating cost to the victor that they can barely be considered to have won or benefited at all. For example, in response to... To congratulations that he received for winning uh, a victory over the Romans, a very costly victory over the Romans. Uh, Pyrrhus of Epirus was reported to have said, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. Um, Now, Pyrrhus was apparently a great military leader, second only to Alexander the Great in the eyes of Hannibal. Also, somewhat more interestingly, he's said to have a magic toe. A magic toe? (laughs) (laughs) A magic toe that cured ailments. Um, Despite being a king, he would apparently regularly go to help anyone, regardless of wealth, by pushing his foot against them. So, say, their spleen. uh, By pushing his foot against their spleen and supposedly curing them. And uh, according to the Roman philosopher, historian and biographer Plutarch's famous Parallel Lives work, when Pyrrhus was finally cremated after his death, his toe did not burn, his magic toe did not burn and was taken off uh, to some unknown temple somewhere. Uh, That same author and biographer, Plutarch, also wrote the book Life of Solon. In this book, we find one of the most detailed early accounts of the story of Atlantis and including a An analysis, it's kind of a meta-analysis of Atlantis' first verifiable historical mention in a fictional dialogue by Plato called Timaeus. Um, Atlantis is also the setting for the book Three Go Back, published in 1932 and written by the author James Leslie Mitchell in his book uh, an airship travels back in time but actually crashes in the Atlantic Ocean in the process and the three survivors awake to find themselves in a wild land, not in fact in the middle of the sea and that land turns out to be Atlantis and James Leslie Mitchell strangely enough co-authored the book with Lewis Grassic Gibbon which actually was himself. Yeah. <laughs> so James Leslie Mitchell and Lewis Grassic Gibbon co-authored, apparently. Um, but there you go. Nexus sorted.
1: Cool. Might deserve a bit of a history lesson as well, so strap the fuck in, lads. Um,
2: hang on, hang on. Neil, any thoughts on that? Nexus, anything particularly capture your attention? Thumbs
3: up, thumbs down? Just mind-blown. And the fact that you went for the that's EP I, uh, that no one's ever listened to is very impressive uh, as a starting point. Yeah, that,
2: that's what... That's what I do I blow minds
1: Alright Mark uh, cool. Okay so Sam and Ravi uh, They both went to The University College London Which also happens to be The same university That Coldplay All of Coldplay went to That Brett Anderson from Suede uh, went to That Justine from Elastica went to And, and The Current from Keane went to Amongst <laughs> many others <laughs> um, Is his name Keane? Uh, it's Tim something It's not Keane T-
3: Tim something I think Keen. Yeah.
1: Keen, um, Tim uh, another alumni. <laughs> I'm. I'm, a, I'm actually a keen Tim.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh well, There's going to be. A, there's going to be an actual another Tim in this. So just uh, start All the right, fucking. Uh. So another alumni from the University College of London, and to be fair, there are fucking many. Is actually a fictional character called Molly McDonald, who is in the book and the TV series Mark of the Glen. <laughs> so the Mark of the Glen is a BBC TV show that was based on a book of the same name by the author Compton Mackenzie. He's quite an interesting fellow, actually. He was born in County Durham into a theatrical family, and went to Oxford, studied modern history, became a writer, and he was most famous for writing two comedy novels that were set in Scotland, one of them being The Monica of the Glen. He'd actually taken steps to trace his lineage back to the highlands of Scotland, and as a result, he grew really attached to the Gaelic culture. Um, he later converted to Catholicism, became a Jacobite, And he's actually one of the co-founders of the SNP. He also defeated Oswald Mosley to become the rector of Glasgow University in 1931. Top lad. Top lad indeed. He later went on to build a house on the island of Barra and he lived a long life there. And apparently he became really well known in the village as being a really friendly guy. My uncle was the head of the school on the island of Barra. I wonder if he knew him. Probably would have. He described his friends on Barra as the aristocrats of democracy, whatever the fuck that means. Alright, oh, definitely <laughs> not then. My uncle used to punch vending machines. <laughs> um, he eventually moved to Edinburgh, and uh, after he died there, he was interned in St Bar Cemetery in, in Barra. Um, anyway, as a co-founder of the SNP, uh, well, it was actually the, the party that, was before the SNP that became the SNP, which is the National Party of Scotland. One of the people they co-founded it with was a, a chap called Christopher Murray Greave, otherwise known by the pen name as Hugh McDermott. Um, mm. Hugh McDermott is an utterly fascinating character, like really, really interesting guy. I could talk about, I could do a whole podcast just about him himself. I won't do that. I'll just give you the cliff notes. He was actually kicked out the SNP for being too radical. He joined the Communist Party and was kicked at the Communist Party for being too radical. <laughs> and George Orwell said to the MI5 that he was so radical that he couldn't be trusted. Um, he was a leading figure in what's called the Scottish Renaissance, which was a period kind of in between World War One, World War II, where the Scots language started to undergo a renaissance, I guess, in that kind of modernist period. He's often cited as being responsible for keeping the Scottish language alive and its national memory. Um, He created a version of Scots called Synthetic Scots which is kind of a version of of Scots which takes different words from different dialects to create a kind of homogenised version of the Scottish dialect. He used it across a lot of his poetry, um, although as he grew older he started to move more towards publishing in English as well because he wanted to write poetry that, quote, contained all knowledge. (laughs) Mm. Um, He was also a very prolific translator of Scottish Gaelic work. like I said A really interesting figure uh, Controversial Right until his death Seemed like top par Loved a wee dram Good guy um, one of his good friends liked like to uh, like to bash the fash. Yeah, he really did. <laughs> one of his good friends was Mister James Leslie Mitchell, otherwise known as Luke Grassic Gibbon, who was also a fascinating character. Um, he produced a lot of work. He was only he died when he was thirty three in nineteen thirty five, and he wrote nineteen books between nineteen twenty eight and nineteen thirty five. It's truly staggering amount of output. Yeah, what you've been doing? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> his most famous. His most famous. For the Scots Quair trilogy, particularly the book *Sunset Song*, which is actually part of the, nat- the national cl- curriculum in Scotland, um, it was quite a rev- revolutionary book at the time because it was written entirely in Doric, which is the dialect of Scots up in Aberdeenshire area. It's written entirely. Ah, oh, fuck in
2: it. me, it's it's so impenetrable. Neil, you ever heard anyone talking
3: in Doric? No, I've I've never even heard that. I heard of that before.
1: <laughs>
3: Did
2: it's... I I'd had an ex-girlfriend and her dad spoke in the broadest Doric and he actually also had false teeth and he used to take his false teeth out and he was having a drink. she so would have a guy that spoke in Doric, was half-pished and had his teeth it, and it was fucking hellish. Is, is, <laughs> Absolutely for, hellish.
3: Forgive my ignorance, but is Doric as some sort of like dialect or is it like...
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's so, like it's north of Aberdeen. It's like the rural areas mm-hmm. around that kind of like northeast
3: right. corner. I think a good comparison Aberdeesia.
1: would be, you know, the way people down in Yorkshire have like their their own kind of like dialect. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of like that. So fit Ken like. It's, it's like, probably like you know, as, yeah. as extreme as the likes, like
2: Cornish and stuff. Yeah. You know, oh. it's
1: really, mm. it's
2: really hard wow. to follow sometimes.
1: Yeah, but uh, so the the Scottish, When I say the Scots, the Scots queer trilogy is written in Doric. It's not actually written in the dialect. It's written in the same sing-song way. So we, when you hear people speak mm-hmm. in Doric, it's quite. It sounds quite lyrical, quite musical. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the three books: um, the Sunset Song, Cloud Howe and uh, Grey Grant. Uh, grey granite, granite grey, um, they are all written in a version of Doric which is very lyrical so it almost feels like poetry but it's not, it's a really lovely, it was re- three really lovely bits of work all following um, a, f- a female character called Chris Guthrie as she kind of navigates post-industrial uh, or industrialisation so that, that it's got a lot of social commentary Talk about the effects of industrialisation on the farming population in Scotland at the time effects of world war one and people as they were coming back from that and then the third book is kind of more about a rise of left-wing politics the working class the creation of the working class and the creation of scottish scottish cities really fascinating trilogy um and he's like he was a phenomenal writer phenomenally talented guy as well and yeah he co-wrote he a book with uh hugh mcdermott as well um but yeah that's 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 my nexus, and that's that's Job just done. a little bit of my my degree coming into play there. I suppose. Oh man, you fucking love it! See, I, I hate to even interrupt your flow, seeing you get
3: going. In that
2: it's like when we did the big country episode. It's like oh, just just leave him. He, need, he needs to get out his system yeah. once every six months. I do, I, and there there it is.
3: <laughs> I feel like you guys should do a nexus, just like like a off unsung, just called unsung nexus, because it's it's getting more impressive by the week.
1: I've been advocating that for ages. Yeah, there's, um, there's some that we could definitely do that one for sure.
3: Neil, that was
2: actually a total treat. As I said, I've been... I'm, I'm pleased. I feel I left with a more nuanced and sort of settled perspective on my v because, like I said, I, I had reservations uh, regarding them in my head and I hadn't quite reconciled those. So it was, it was really interesting. And it was it was fun. It was it was fun listening. It's light listening. It's not it's not tough. So if you're listening to this and you're not sure about them, it, you'll, you'll probably find it quite easy to get through it and then you'll maybe understand a bit more about what we're talking about in the in the track by track uh so thank you very much for coming in neil i hope we get a chance to get you back mm-hmm. now we've got one last little bit of admin to do here mark mm-hmm. next week what are we covering
1: so next next week uh, our pal ferruccio from italy is coming back Ferruccio We're going to do Ferruccio Quachetti We're going to do The debut album by the band The Sound And it's called Jeopardy I've never heard them before Uh, People already know my opinion on post-punk So it should be a tasty episode
2: (laughs) Absolute ripper Okay and to that We are going to nexus. What in the motherfucking It's fucking Davy Bright again That bastard's always coming up with things That I don't know what they are Thomas McRocklin no idea who that is, but I'm sure we'll find out <laughs> no next idea week. Who yeah. that is. Thanks, Davey. <laughs> Fucking you again, you bastard. Right, okay, Neil, really appreciate your time. Plug the podcast one more time. You've got a I know you said that you're gonna be doing it far less regularly, but you've got a mighty catalogue of really interesting stuff there, so it'd be good if people went and had a wee listen. What is it
3: again? It's called the accordion. With a colon, conversations about music. Um, it's a light blue kind of icon that you can hope that's hopefully easy on the eyes and easy to find. Um, yeah, it's about um, it's about music, and each episode focuses on either an album or an artist um, or something a little bit different, but always a particular thing about music. Um, so please check it out, um, and, and and it's very lighthearted and it's sort of quite easy going as well. Like I said, I'm absolutely shit at plugging myself. So apologies, but just <laughs> listen to it. <laughs>
1: yes, definitely go and listen to it. That's how we found each other. So yeah, it's a good show. Right. Okay, guys. That was a treat. I, uh, we're going to replace Neil's uh, undulating
2: English uh, vowels with some hardcore Italian next week. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and in the meantime, go and live your lives. That's what I'm going to try and do. And
1: oh, yeah, if you agree or disagree with us, vote on our Twitter page that's that's how it works (laughs) bye bye